Esther chapter 2, verses 1 through 18, it says this. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's attendants who served him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. Let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather every beautiful virgin to the citadel of Susa, to the harem, into the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. And let their cosmetics be given them. Then let the young lady who pleases the king be queen in the palace of Vashti, in the place of Vashti. And the matter pleased the king, and he did accordingly. Now there was at the citadel of Susa a Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had no father or mother. Now the young lady was beautiful of form and face, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So it came about, when the command and decree of the king were heard, And many young ladies were gathered to the citadel of Susa into the custody of Haggai, that Esther was taken to the king's palace into the custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. Now the young lady pleased him and found favor with him. So he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and food, gave her seven choice maids from the king's palace, and transferred her and her maids to the best place in the harem. Esther did not make known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. Every day, Mordecai walked back and forth in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. Now, when the turn of each young lady came to go into King Ahasuerus, after the end of her 12 months, under the regulations for the women, for the days of their beautification were completed as follows, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and cosmetics for women. The young lady would go into the king in this way. Anything that she desired was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem, to the custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not again go into the king unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. Now, in the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, came to go into the king. She did not request anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the women, advised. And Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus to his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month Tebet, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet. For all his princes and his servants, he also made a holiday for the provinces and gave gifts according to the king's bounty. Lord, may you bless the reading of your word. May our hearts and minds be open to what you would have for us today as we uh, seek to honor you with everything that is said and done. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So as we start this, we're coming now into uh, another section of the story. Last week, we met a man, and this is where our story picks up this week, a man who I'm going to call Xerxes because that's the way history knows him as. In the Bible, we, we, uh, uh, the, the Hebrews use the Persian name, King Ahasuerus. Um, it's much easier to say Xerxes, so that's what I'm going to do. Um, I, and, and before we do, I, I kind of wanted to take a minute and start off because he's the way that this passage is kind of laid out, when you look at a story, you, it kind of moves from scene to scene to scene, and, and it's hard to get a feel for 
the timeline sometimes and how things are breaking out. And so I want to look at this by looking first at the people involved. So we're going to see three people, and then we're going to kind of see what the action is and what's going on with these people. And the first person we come to is, once again, this King Xerxes. It says in verse 1, After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what he had done and what had been decreed against her. Now, it says after these things. Last week, Gunnar mentioned the fact that between chapter 1 and chapter 2, there it's, it's not like it just happens one right after the other. There's a period of three years at least and four years before he marries Esther. Verse 16, when he marries Esther, is actually takes place four years after the huge party where he tries to get Vashti to come out and strip tease for him, and um, and she won't because she's a, a woman who won't do that, and he dumps her and so on and so forth. And so that's what brings him up to chapter 2. So what's been going on? Well, in order to understand that, I kind of wanted to break it down in a timeline. And Gunnar called me this week, and he's like, you know, I think we need some sort of a timeline in order to figure out, like, how this story fits into the bigger picture and where all these pieces are. And I was like, I'm way ahead of you. I've already got it worked in the Sunday sermon. So I kind of threw a little bit of it up here. But basically what you have to need to know is what's gone on in history is so 120 years before this story takes place in 597 BC, that was when Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar came into Israel they removed all the captives out of Israel, took them back to Babylon. And basically, he took all the rich people, all the people who were educated, all the people who were anything in Israel. He took them all and took them back to Babylon because that was what they did. They would take over a country and take all the best of the people and the goods for themselves. So um, that was when Daniel got transported back. We're going to look at him a little bit later. But that's when that happened, 597 B.C. Well, then... Skip ahead to 538 B.C., about 60 years later. Now you have a new king, Cyrus. Cyrus is Persian. He has now, they have defeated the Babylonians. Cyrus comes along 60 years later, and Cyrus actually says, hey, um, I, you know, he, we don't think he actually became a believer, but there's a very uh, strong um, indication that he actually at least uh, understood Stood God in a certain degree, and he 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 wanted the people of God, he wanted Israel to go back and worship him. So he said he actually made a decree, and you can read about it in Ezra, where Cyrus issues a decree and lets Ezra and as many people of Israel as want to go go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And so that's what they do. So a huge group of them go back to rebuild the temple in 538 BC. So that's 60 years after after they've been made a captive. Then skip ahead another um, uh, 50 years, 55 years, and you come down to this man that the Bible calls Ahasuerus that we know in history as Xerxes. Um, and, uh, the, and, and Xerxes now begins to reign from uh, 485 to 465. He only has a 20-year reign, but yet he's one of the most well-known kings in history for what he does um, uh, for just his greatness, he was the basically the 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 king of Persia at the height of its uh, reign in the world. So Xerxes is a very powerful king, but he only reigns for twenty years, from four eighty-five to four sixty-five. And this story takes place the entire book over about ten year a ten-year period. 
So that's where we find ourselves. Chapter 1 actually happens about two years into his reign in about 483. And at that point, obviously, he gets rid of, he, he says goodbye to Vashti. Now we come up to chapter 2, and although it seems kind of like, okay, well, then he says, I want a new queen, that's not really what happened. There's like a three-year period there. So what's he doing during this three-year period? Um, the, and, and then just for reference sake, I wanted to throw in, too, in 444 B.C., that's now, that's another um, uh, almost 50 year or 50 years, 40 years later, that's when Nehemiah goes back to rebuild the wall. So there's a whole nother group of people that go back to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem 40 years after this story takes place. So that's kind of the timeline we're looking at. Well, so what's been going on between the time that 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 the uh, chapter one takes place and chapter two takes place? Well, Gunnar started talking about it last week, but basically it's the end of the Greco-Persian Wars. Now, if you've ever studied anything in history, there, were, there was a, group, a series of wars between the city-states of Greece, who would eventually take over the world 100, 100 years after the fact, after all this takes place. Uh, there's a series of wars known as the Greco-Persian Wars that happened from 520 to 479. Well, guess what happens in 479 as well? Esther marries the king. The interesting thing is that Xerxes uh, is kind of the last... Persian king to get defeated by the Greeks. Um, his father, Darius, has gone to, to Greece with an army, and the Greeks defeated him. They couldn't take, they've taken over everywhere else in the world, but these little group of Greek city-states, you studied about them in history class a long time ago in high school. Things like, places like Athens, uh, Sparta, all these little places that are the Greek city-states, they, they didn't have like a single ruler. They didn't start off with like a single ruler. They had more of a loose confederation. But in their fights against Persia, that was what kind of drew them together as a group of city-states to form what eventually became the Greek Empire. Well, so basically what happened was Xerxes, in order to avenge kind of what his father had done because he lost that war, his dad dies before he's able to gather enough of an army to go back over and fight him. So Xerxes, probably that party in chapter 1, is really getting together all the lower level rulers, the generals, his admirals, and really it's it's gathering these people together and and there's no absolute proof of it, but it's probably during that six month period, he's kind of they're setting up some plans. Yes, they're having a big party, but nobody parties for six straight months, unless you're a rock star. I don't know. Um but you know, you don't party for six straight months. They, they it is probably his his kind of gathering up of all his his sub rulers and all these people planning for this massive battle to take over the Greek city states. Well, so he gathers up literally. Uh, if you believe the Greek historians, and you have to remember, Greek get, Greece gets to write the history because Persia lost. So the winners will always write the history the way they want. And according to Greek historians, he gathers an army of about a million and a half men. Um, most modern day historians actually say that's really on the high side and believe that it was three to five hundred thousand men, which is still huge. Not and not to mention that they don't include any support personnel in that count. So all your supply people, all your people like me who carried ammunition and all these other people who do their things to support an army on the ground, they weren't counted in that number. So he had a absolutely humongous army, land army. He also gathers up twelve hundred ships. If you know anything about our, our Navy, 
we don't have 1,200 ships. We barely, barely have 300 right now. So this is a massive, massive army and navy. Well, so he goes over to um, the Greek city-states during this time. And uh, if, if and I wouldn't recommend seeing it if you haven't seen it. But in the movie 300, it depicts the first battle that they and they actually win. This is I mean, he's got a massive army. He way outnumbers these people. So he comes in and in the first battle of Thermopylae, uh, which is pictured in the movie 300. Of course, that's where the Spartans send out 300 men and they're there defending their their city. And they're like the first um, road roadblock on the way to Greece. So there, and, and that's where the 300 Spartans take on this, you know, million man army. And, uh, ultimately they do lose, but they really only lose. They had such good position on them. They, they lose just because sheer attrition. They lost so many people and because uh, they have a traitor that goes and, and, uh, and gives up to the other side and tells the Persians how they can go around and defeat the Spartans. So anyway, that's, that's that battle. Well, they go on from there. And history is kind of sketchy on this, but they somebody destroys the city of Athens. Some thinks the Greeks did it just because they didn't want the Persians to get it. Others, uh, the Greek historians say the Persians burned down Athens. So anyway, they destroyed the city of Athens. Um, and anyway, that's where he lands. So they, he's he's winning. Well, then this guy doesn't have a habit of listening to the right people. If you think back to chapter one. He, he listens to this guy who, remember, as Gunnar pointed out last week, the guy he listens to in chapter one who tells him, hey, just get rid of Vashti. And oh, by the way, make a law that says all men have to have to or all women have to listen to everything their husband does and obey them. That's a great law, isn't it? No, I'm just kidding. Um, that's never going to go well for him. And and the and, and so this guy doesn't listen to the right people at all ever. And the same thing happens here because what he listens to a military advisor who's actually working for the other side. And, uh, and, and he sends his 1200 ship Navy that should be able to defeat anything. He sends them over to fight the Greek Navy in like the best possible position the Greeks could ever be in. And so as a result, the Greeks actually win that battle and destroy a large percentage of this fleet. And then instead of using his land army to support them, he starts having problems in Babylon. He pulls out like three quarters of his army and takes them all the way back to Babylon because or, or to uh, Susa and Babylon uh, and leaves just his elite forces. And guess what? They get defeated. So about the time that he's marrying Esther, his main general back in uh, back in, in, in Greece is being is is is. Yeah, he's getting defeated. And um, so. Anyway, that's what's happening during all this time. So he has just lost a major battle. He's lost a huge percentage of his his ships, and he's had to hightail it back to his kingdom. And at that point, all of a sudden, he starts thinking, man, it sure would be nice to come back and just sit down and relax in my castle and call my queen to me and just how just man, I just need to relax and I, I need to put all this behind me. And then he thinks. Oh, man, but I don't have a queen. I got rid of her. She's gone. And that point, and, and I kind of, you know, I don't know that exactly that was what going through his mind. We don't know exactly what it means. But apparently he remembers Vashti and what he had done and what has been decreed against her. And I kind of sense a little bit of forlornness here, a little bit of just like, man, should I really have done that? Well, at that point, you know, you would think the average person would think, you know, maybe I can make this right. Maybe I can fix this. But instead, 
This guy, like I said, has a really bad habit of listening to the wrong people. So he, he, he goes, and, and this is what he hears instead. In verse 2 it says, Then the king's attendants, who served him, said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. Let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather every beautiful young virgin to the citadel of Susa, to the harem, into the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in the charge of the women, and let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young lady who pleases the king be queen in place of Vashti, and the matter pleased the king, and he did accordingly. So what do we know about this king, about Xerxes? Well, we've seen in chapter 1 he didn't listen to the right advice, and he deposes Vashti and makes a stupid law. Then he doesn't listen to the right people, and he loses at war. Now he's not going to listen to the right people, and he's really going to make a mess of a whole lot of girls' lives. Um, This, I think in Xerxes, what we have is a picture of pride at its worst. Pride when given anything in the world at once, because he has that ability with all of that money and with all of that power and being who he is, this is where ultimately pride and sin leads to. So here he is, the most powerful man in the world, probably the richest man in the world at that time. And yet, really, what does he have? He's got no wife. He just lost a war. And he's basically sitting there going, okay, what am I going to do now? And if we let, I think for us, he's the picture of a warning of what not to let sin do in our lives. And the more he gave into that sin, he had gotten to the place. The one thing the movie 300, I think, does get right is, is their, their vision of him is just dumb. That's not what he looked like. But a, he, it pictures him as literally thinking of himself as a deity. And he actually called himself the king of kings. And in his mind, that was not just saying, okay, I'm king over a lot of other kings. He literally was lifting himself up to the place of God. And if you let yourself get in the point to the point where you think that it, the world revolves around you and you can have anything you want and no one is more important than you, that's where pride will ultimately lead. Now, most of us don't have the money, the power or the authority to let it get to this point. But for in the, this man Xerxes, his sin and his pride had led him to the place where he literally thought that he could be put in the place of God. And so he would call himself 300 and ultimately that's where he would call himself king of kings. And that's literally where we find him at at this point. And he can do anything he wants. And so when he goes and he realizes, hey, I I got rid of my, my wife, my queen. And the fact of the matter is he can have any woman he wants. He already has a harem that's huge. So he can sex wasn't the problem. He wanted a wife. And instead of going back, admitting his mistakes, fixing his marriage, what does he do? He listens again to the wrong advice. Now, for us, when we want advice from someone, probably the people you don't want to get advice from are the people that work for you. Because if you're in charge of something and you go to the people that work for you, do you think they're going to give you what you need to hear or what you want to hear? 
If I'm paying their paycheck, they better tell me what I want to hear. No, I'm just kidding. They, I want to feel, you know, none of us, especially the guy that has the ability to cut your head off because you looked at him wrong, you're probably not going to tell him, King, you're an idiot. You need to go remarry your wife and, and take away this stupid law you put on the books and, and move on with your life. Instead, he gets these young guys. You know, who knows if they're even married? And they show up and say, oh, King, I got a great idea for you. Let's have a beauty pageant. And not just any beauty pageant. In our day and age, I would compare it to The Bachelor. Okay? You have what we ultimate, what really is going on here is The Bachelor Persia. Now, The Bachelor is a really horrible TV show. But I can imagine that, honestly, that's a lot what this is like, except for with one majorly huge difference. Every girl in this beauty pageant is forced to be there. Not because they want to be there. Now, the way I was, I always pictured this story sitting through Sunday school is this nice little godly Christian girl named Esther and her nice little godly uncle and, 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 and this king who just wants this wife. And so he has this nice little beauty pageant. That is not really what happens here. This is forcible removal from their homes of up to a thousand girls between the ages of 16 and 20 that no one of us would call an adult, much less anyone be forced into one night of sex with the king and forced to go live away from their families, probably to never see them again, or if they see them very rarely and be put with a bunch of other women made to just basically just be a showpiece for the king, spend one night with him and then spend the rest of their life in perpetual widowhood because most of them would never see him again, but could also never remarry anyone else. So that's what was really going on here. And that's what this prideful king had happen. So it's interesting to me that Xerxes, who was known for appreciating beautiful things, had gotten to the point so much that to him, women were nothing but another thing for him to put in his trophy case, to bring home another country that he had conquered, another person that he had taken. And that's ultimately where his pride had led. So that's Xerxes. That's the first player in our story. This, now we meet the two people who are literally the central characters and with the one central character being Esther. But really, there's two major central characters here. Now we meet Mordecai and Esther. In verse 5, it says, Now there was at the citadel in Susa a Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shemiah, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had no father or mother. Now the young lady was beautiful of form and face, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So here we have Mordecai and we have Esther. Now we finally get a chapter and, a, a chapter and five verses in, we, we finally meet the person the book's named after, Esther. And before we meet her, we meet her uncle, who is taking care of her. It's not her uncle. They're actually cousins. I don't know why I keep saying uncle. but um, the um, So they're cousins, and her parents had apparently died. Now, who is this guy, Mordecai? Mordecai is a fourth-generation Jew living in Persia, Babylon. And... This is where Gunnar mentioned last week that commentators widely vary on how to actually view the book of Esther. This is a big place where that happens. 
a lot of people and probably the way that I was taught growing up in Sunday school and church was, oh, here's this man of God, Mordecai, serving God in the king's palace and representing God and his faith. And he's raising this girl and blah, blah, blah. I don't read it that way at all. Mordecai is not exactly a picture of a God fearing Jew. Let's start with him and then we'll look at Esther. The first thing is, remember this timeline. We know that Kish, his uh, his great, his his father, grandfather, great grandfather, four generations, his great grandfather was transported out of Babylon. But we also know that 60 years later, the Persian king Cyrus allowed Ezra to go back with any Jew who wanted to go back to the promised land. Now, let me ask you this. If you're a God-fearing Jew, what do you know? You know that Jerusalem is where we worship God at. We don't do it in Babylon. We, or at least we worship, we can worship God there. Daniel prayed to God, but that is not where God told his people to worship him at. They were supposed to bring sacrifices to a temple in Jerusalem. So if you're a God-fearing Jew and you're given the opportunity to leave Babylon and go back to where God has told you to worship him at and rebuild your temple. And by the way, the King Cyrus says, oh, and I'll give you gold and silver and stuff to take with you and do it so you can live happily in your land. The God fearing Jew is going to say, oh, send me. I'm there. So what do we know about Mordecai? We know that at least his father did not go back with all the God fearing Jews. Now, I know I'm reading into this a little bit, but I don't think much because God's name is never mentioned. Mordecai, even even at the end, doesn't mention prayer. It's all about it's all about saving his people culturally, but not necessarily following their faith as written down. So here you have Mordecai. He he should be back in Jerusalem if he's truly a God fearing Jew. And from what I read instead He's sitting here in Persia and Babylon. And not only that, we're going to find out later, he, he's a pretty important guy in that, in, in that position. So he, he's worked his way up into this ungodly king's cabinet. Now, that's not necessarily an indictment on him because Daniel did that too. Um, so anyway, we, we know that Kish was taken away. And 2 Kings 24 is where we actually see that the Jews were transported out of, out of uh, Israel and into Babylon. And then in Ezra 1, 1 through 5, this is why I say that he, he should have had the chance to go back. It says in Ezra 1, 1 through 5, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Then the heads of fathers, households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose. Even everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. So that's the first thing we know about him. He didn't go, or at least his father didn't. And now he's sitting apart from the worship of the house of God. So that's not an important matter to him. The second thing we know is, is this, his name. Names are very important in the scriptures. To us, 
you know, how do we choose a name? You scratch yourself on the face. I'm going to name him Nick. Um, you know, not necessarily. But, you know, their names have meaning and, and we don't think about them as much. I mean, I, you, we chose my son's name because we could have both agree on Bradley and we liked it. Um, Zane was the, the first name of my dad's favorite writer growing up, Zane Gray. So, I mean, it, you know, we, we have all sorts of reasons for changing, choosing names. But in the Old Testament especially, names were chosen because they represented the character and beliefs and lifestyle of a person. So when we come to Mordecai, what does his name tell us? Number one, we don't even know a Hebrew name. All we're given here is the Persian name, and his name comes from the Persian god Marduk. And typically, if they are believing Jews who are given another name, the Bible still uses their believing Jew name, not Jewish name, not the unbelief, unbelieving name. Well, Mordecai has accepted this name that is based on a, per, a, a Babylonian god, a deity. So it, we don't know for sure, but it kind of seems like he could have accepted some of the religious practices that were going on around him. So not only is he not in the place where he could be practicing his faith, he's also apparently influenced by it to some degree just by the fact that he's accepted this name. Now, so that's Mordecai. We also know that he, he's not a bad guy. He adopts his cousin whose parents have died. That's a very good thing. So, so while he may be a moral guy, he may be a good guy, I don't necessarily think he's a God-fearing, God-following, practicing Jew. That's all I'm saying. Now we come to Esther. What do we know about Esther? Well, first thing here, at least, that I want to look at is the fact that her name as well tells us something about herself. What is her Hebrew name? Her Hebrew name is um, Hadassah. And um, her, uh, her Hebrew name actually means myrtle. That's a good thing. It, 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 it signifies life, a uh, tree planted by the water. It has a lot of real good significance there. But what name does she go by? Esther. Esther is from the word Ishtar, which is a Babylonian deity that means star. And so she represents herself and people know her by her Babylonian Persian name that is representative of a Babylonian deity. Once again, that she's been influenced by these religious practices that are going on around her. It's not 100%, but it kind of seems like they've been very influenced by the Babylonian religion. So... Um, there is, there's no historical record outside of the scripture of exactly these two people. There's one little historical reference that could be them, but it definitely does not have the agreement of everyone. And that is there was a guy named Mordecai who apparently was an important tax inspector who used to travel from Susa. And we have records of him going to Babylon and actually inspecting their taxes to make sure they were sending enough money back to the king in Susa. Um, when it comes to Esther, there there is a slight possibility, although I don't know that it's very strong, that um, it, we do know of a wife that Xerxes had called Amestris. Most people say that was Vashti, but there could be the possibility, if you remove the A-M from that, that it kind of leaves Estris, and that could be kind of a shortened form of Esther. Um, like I said, by the time all the names get mixed up between Hebrew and Aramaic and Persian and and, and all these other names, it, it kind of becomes confusing. But either way, I don't believe these two are the God-fearing Jewish believers that we kind of get the picture of, or at least the way I grew up kind of hearing the story. Um, and unfortunately, 
while the, while 300 doesn't present an accurate picture of history, I also don't believe one night with the king um, picturing Esther as this Bible quoting wonderful little young girl um, who loves the Lord and and talks about him all the time. I don't think that's actually accurate to who Esther really was either. So anyway, now that's Mordecai and Esther. We've seen Xerxes. Now we come to the the story. The, the, what's the action and what's going to happen. And truly what really happens here is what I call the bachelor Persia. So they come on and in verse eight, it says, so it came about when the command and decree of the king were heard and many young ladies were gathered to the citadel of Susa in the custody of Haggai, that Esther was taken to the king's palace into the custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. Notice that word there taken. This was not voluntary. Don't have in your mind a picture of a bunch of young women who enter an application to come join the king's beauty pageant. Because that's not what happened. They were forcibly taken from their homes because they happened to look pretty. And they were about 16, 17 years old. And and they were forced to go live in this big harem that was ultimately, for one reason only, to send each one of those girls to go sleep with the king, go have sex with the king for one night, and then ship them over to another harem where of his concubines, where they would basically be at his beck and call for the rest of their lives, never allowed to marry, and never allowed to have any other sexual relations of any type outside of that outside of that harem. So this is not a nice, pretty picture. This is sex slavery. And um, while we would like to think that doesn't happen today, unfortunately, we still have it. Maybe not as... Maybe not as open. Maybe we don't have a king forcing things to happen. But, but things like that are still going on. And there are young girls and there are even young boys being, being, being sold all over the world for prostitution and other things. And, 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 you know, sometimes it helps just to remember that some of these things we read in the Bible that we think, oh, that's, we don't do that stuff anymore. Some of it's still going on and we can get so cushioned that we look around our society and we don't really see these every day. But we need to pray for people that are trapped in these lifestyles going to Thailand and the Philippines. I mean, it's everywhere. It's very rampant and it's very obvious. And even here in our country, we may not see it as much, but it's still there. You know, I mean, you talk to the police officers who can see and you find out that, you know, the, the, the prostitute who has her passport taken away from her by somebody who and not allowed to do anything because it's held over her head until she does what she's told to do. That's sex slavery. And, 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 and that's what we're talking about here. It's no different that these girls were taken away from their homes and forced into this. And, and they were put in charge of this man named Haggai. Um, obviously, if you're the king, who do you put in charge of a bunch of women? You put the man who can't do anything about it. You put your eunuch. So he's a trusted eunuch. He's in charge of all the women. And that's where we find Esther at. Now, it says in verse 9, Now the young lady pleased him and found favor with him, so he quickly provided her with cosmetics and food and gave her seven choice maids from the king's palace and transferred her and her maids to the best place in the harem. Esther did not make known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. Now, this is the interesting part. Here's Esther. You know, I can imagine that in this setting... You know, in the five seconds or so that I've seen of a few bachelor programs, it's just, I don't know, it's insipid and stupid, so I can't watch it. But um, in, in a few, the few times I've actually seen that show, it's like, 
and, and, and every other show that even comes close to it, like Survivor or whatever. What's the whole goal of those contests? You stab everybody else in the back so you can get rid of them so you can rise to the top and be number one. I mean, really, that's what you're trying to do. Um, and, and so I can imagine that in this group of, a, it's probably like a thousand young girls here in this group. They're pro- even though they were basically slaves stolen from their homes and brought to this group, you have to think there was probably a few of them that were going, well, if I have to be here, I might as well be the prettiest and be the, the best. So when I get my night with the king, I'm the winner. And so how do you think they acted? They probably acted just like every game show we see on TV where, hey, I'm going to outdo this person. I'm going to stab this person in the back and I'm going to get some rank here and I'm going to try to get in with this guy here and in with this girl here. I, I'm sure there was all the same politics going on. But yet, in Esther, the one thing I'll say about her at this point is that I don't think I see that in her. I see kind of a little girl, um, you know, old enough that she's a teenager, but, but, but still kind of, you know, she's doing what Mordecai tells her to do. She's like, she's kind of bright-eyed and like, oh, okay, well, I'll do that. And then Haggai gets her and, and he takes an interest in her and, and he says, hey, you do this. And she's, okay, I'll do that. That's fine. I don't see the, the kind of manipulative stab in the back. I, I don't see her to be that type. But yet God takes that little girl. And if she's ever going to be the, the queen married to, to Xerxes, the most powerful man on earth at that time, she's going to have to have a transformation. Besides just being plain and pretty and all this, she's going to have to know some stuff and she's going to have to be willing to do some stuff. And Haggai basically takes her under his wing. Do you think that's God working in that situation? Remember the one thing we said about the book of Esther. You're never going to see the name of God anywhere in this book. But everywhere you read is God doing one little step, one more thing, so that ultimately the whole nation of Israel is saved. And so while Esther is here Even though she's not there going, hey, pick me, pick me, look at me. I'm the greatest. I'm the prettiest. All of a sudden, this guy notices her and says, wow, you got a nice personality. We can work with you. Come here. Come here. You're I'm going to give you seven. Do you think I don't I don't think that each one of these girls had seven maids waiting on them. But Esther did. God providentially worked it out to have her in the right place at the right time. And even in terrible situations, God is in control. And that's what we see. So, but what else do we know about Esther here? We've already said she has this name. It kind of looks like maybe she's at least not the God-fearing Jew that we think she is, that some people try to say she is. And and I want to look at a few other things we know about her here. In in Deuteronomy chapter 7, we we find this command in Deuteronomy chapter 7. It says, Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. This is talking about other nations. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take your daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. So one of the main commands to the people of Israel is don't intermarry with the pagans. And it wasn't about it wasn't about race. It was it was truly about not um bringing pagan religion into the worship of the one true God. And so Esther, as a Jew, is commanded, do not intermarry with pagans. What's her whole purpose of being there? 
It's to marry a pagan king, someone who does not follow God, does not trust God, does not believe God, and in fact thinks he is a God. So Esther was violating God's law as given to Moses, at least in this one place. Number one, not to marry a pagan. What else do we know that she was violating? Um, well, ultimately, I mean, there's no nice way to say this. She, it's all about having sex with the king for one night, and you're not married to him. That's kind of a violation of God's law. So now she's going to go have sex with someone she's not married to, and that's the whole point of this contest. So um, that's a violation of God's law. And then there's one other thing that's pretty big as well um, that, that we can kind of look at in more detail. It says, uh, it says in verse 9, Now the young lady pleased him and found favor with him, so he quickly provided her with cosmetics and food and gave her seven choice maids. If, if you're Jewish, there's one major thing, major thing that sets you apart from every other nation, every other people group. And that is the way you eat and you keep kosher and you follow those kosher laws. And even we have an example in another young man who was taken um, into captivity all the way back there at the beginning in 597 B.C. There was a young man taken into captivity and his name was Daniel. And. And I want, to, I want to look at the difference in the way both of them reacted to their captivity. In Daniel chapter 1, verse 5, and verse 8, these are the two verses I want to look at. In Daniel chapter 1, verse 5, it says, The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food, and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Okay, that's well and good. They're supposed to get this king's food, king's wine, and all that. But then we come to verse 8. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. David's answer when faced with, hey, you're a captive, you have to do what we tell you to do or face the consequences, he says, okay, well, I serve God and I'm an Israelite, therefore I don't do this, so kill me if you want, but I'm not going to eat this food. That was Daniel's response, because he was willing to take a stand for his faith and for what he believed. Esther's response, okay, give me the food. I'll do what you tell me to do. I'll eat what you want me to eat. Um, all I'm saying is this girl violates every, like basically all of Moses' law. So it's very difficult to say that she's a young, God-fearing young lady who serves God and is the perfect Jew. She's not. But that, honestly, is what's so good about the story, because God doesn't always use perfect people, and yet he's going to use her. So what happens after this? That's her behavior. That's who she is. Mordecai and Esther, they're here in the story. They're not perfect people. They're probably not even God-fearing Jews, but yet God is going to use them to work a miracle. We come down in verse 11. It says every day Mordecai walked back and forth in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. The only reason he was able to do that was because he was in, he was part of the king's palace, his entourage. He was in there. No, no other people were really able to do that. Now, when the turn of each young lady came to go into King Ahasuerus after the end of her 12 months under the regulations for the women, for the days of their beautification were completed as follows. Six months with oil of myrrh, six months with spices, cosmetics for women, basically just ways to make themselves more pretty, um, you know, at this time, you don't have beauty parlors on every corner. You don't have, you know, modern cosmetic techniques. 
But everything they did was to, when they came before the king, they were absolutely as perfect as they could possibly be from a human, just strictly beauty standpoint. Um, And then it says, uh, and then it goes on and it says this, the young lady would go into the king in this way. Anything that she desired was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in and in the morning, she would return to the second harem to the custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not again go to the king unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. That's where I was saying, this is literally one night of sex with the king to be put into a permanent harem of concubines that means you never have sex or marry anyone else. You're the king's for as long as he wants you for the rest of your life. He can do whatever he wants with you. Um, So it's basically sex slavery. Um, The... the, um, the interesting thing is that they could have anything they wanted. They, they could try to entice the king any way they wanted. In my mind, and I know it's just because I spent time in Japan, but um, so I'm, I'm thinking that, you know, they, if they wanted the kimono and the, the fancy, the fancy uh, uh, um, you know, the oriental uh, fan thing, anything they wanted to make themselves look seductive and enticing, that was what they got. And that was provided to them because their whole goal was to seduce the king. That's really what it was all about. And I won't tell you how Gunnar describes. Um, yeah, anyway, I'll leave it at that. Um, but anyway, Gunnar, Gunnar had a really interesting way of saying how Esther then got the king. Um, you can imagine. I mean, apparently it was one night and he impressed. she impressed the king after one night. That's all I'm saying. Um, so. When the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as daughter, came to go into the king, she did not request anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, advised. And Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. So once again, we see that God is taking this little girl. She's, I, I still picture her as being kind of unassuming, not really wanting to put herself out there, but she listens to people. She's willing to do what she's told to do. And God has raised her up to, to get... You know, she's out of Mordecai's hands now. He can't do anything about it. But instead, he puts her into the hands of Haggai, who, you know, he doesn't care. He's not a God-fearing person. All he cares about is, hey, she's pretty. I think I can make her the king's favorite. And he grooms her. And he, she does what he tells her to. And because of that, what do we see then in verse 16? So Esther was taken to the king Ahasuerus to his royal palace in the 10th month, within much of Tibet in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the women. And she found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins. So that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his princes and his servants. He also made a holiday for the provinces and gave gifts according to the king's bounty. This is the picture of God moving through this little girl. She, she's not, he's not mentioned. He's not seen. He's not heard in any way other than seeing this little girl now go from Mordecai, losing her parents, being an orphan, moving in with her cousin who's taking care of her. And she has nothing going for her. She's not of the right right race. She's not the right nationality. She's got nothing going for her. But yet God moves her to be favored in this in this really horrible display of a man's arrogance and pride. To then be taken from there and be chosen by the king as the queen to ultimately bring salvation to her people. 
once again, as this, as this ends, we can see that one man's abuse here, we started with Xerxes. This is the ultimate abuse of his power that he can basically ruin a thousand young girls for the rest of their lives and just throw them away into this huge harem. But yet God even worked in that situation to move this one little girl into just the place that he wanted her to be. And that's where we'll pick it up next week. And as we, but as we think about this, you know, you can come to this story and, and especially as we're breaking it apart and you can say, okay, it, it's a nice story. God saves the Israelites. This is, this is how he does it. But what does it mean? And there's three things that I, I would like to look at today that we can take away from this. There's three things that if you can get from this story, from this part of it we looked at today, that, I, that you need to see. First one is, think about who could actually fix the situation. What's going to happen, as you probably already know, is, is Haman's going to get a decree that's, that is going to uh, annihilate all the Jews. Who can fix that? You've got to understand who Haman was. You have the king, Xerxes. He's the most powerful person in the world, in, in the nation of Persia, for sure. But then right under him, apparently this guy Haman, who is the ultimate e- evildoer, the ultimate enemy in the book, he's not just any guy. He's second in charge, apparently. He is, he is right up there with the king. So if he gets the king to make a decree... There's not a whole lot of other government officials. If, if God had brought in another government official and maybe made him like an under ruler to the king and, you know, maybe, you know, he wouldn't have enough power to fix it. Haman is the second in charge. He can walk into the king and do what, get whatever he wants done. So what does God do? If it were you or me, I guarantee you we'd be sitting there and I, I know I'd be looking at paper going, oh, my goodness, I, I got to fix this. This guy's the second in command. How am I going to fix this? What does God do? He moves somebody that has zero power, zero authority. But what does she have? She's the queen. If you can't get to a husband, how do you get to him? You get to him through their wife. I'm serious. So what does he do? He moves somebody, the only person who could have more power than even the second in command in the land. He moves a queen into place. And just like on a chessboard, the queen's the most powerful figure. So the queen moves into place, and God works the impossible. This could have been any queen. This could have been just another Persian girl, another beautiful Persian woman. Because really all she was going to be was just a trophy for the king. She bare, she wasn't going to see him every night. He had a harem of 2,000 different women. He did not see his wife every night. But yet God took a little Jewish girl and he put her as the queen so that ultimately she becomes the savior of her people. And ultimately what that shows us is that God works through anything. And there's one thing, just like Gunnar said last week, If you take away nothing else from this book, take away the fact that God is always working. That God works through anything and everyone. And that's the second point, is that God uses even broken and disobedient people. I tried to show you 
the picture that most, some of us, most of us, me growing up had in my mind of Mordecai and Esther, of these God-fearing Jews that God used because they were serving him and faithful to him, just I don't think it's the truth. These people were disobedient. They were not living their lives in the way that God wanted them to or that God wanted his people to. And yet, who did God choose to use? It wasn't the obedient person living in Jerusalem, going to the temple every day and offering sacrifices. It was the person living in Persia, away from the fellowship of God, away from the fellowship of his people, who was hiding her identity, who wasn't even willing to stand up and put it on Facebook that she was a Christian. She was completely hiding who she was, and yet God said, that's the person I'm going to use. I'm going to take that disobedient broken, sexually abused little girl after that contest with the king, and I'm going to use her to accomplish my purpose. And boy, does that give us hope. Because in here, even in this room, there are probably people with sexual abuse in their past, with brokenness in their past, with divorces in their past, with all sorts of problems that are happening wherever you're at, whatever you've been through, and God can take you and use you no matter who you are. No matter whether you've been fully obedient for your life, which is impossible, or whether you've failed miserably time after time after time, God can still pick you up wherever you're at and use you to accomplish his purpose. And that should give all of us hope that none of us are beyond his grace and beyond his mercy and beyond the ability of God to use us however he wants to. And then lastly, ultimately, What is this story really all about? It's about salvation. It's about God using Esther, this little girl, to accomplish the salvation of an entire nation, a race of people, the Jews, to accomplish his purpose in history. But ultimately, this Savior is a sinner who's imperfect. But she pictures... An absolutely perfect, sinless, spotless Lamb of God who is our Savior, who came to die on a cross. And the interesting thing is that the people she saves is the people that ultimately this Savior comes from. And so when Jesus Christ comes down because of what she did, he was able to ultimately be born in a manger in Bethlehem, live for 30 years on the earth, 33 years on the earth, and die on a cross so that you and I could have forgiveness for our sins. And if you take away nothing else from the book of Esther, take away the fact that God was preserving a savior for all of mankind. It's not about saving. Jesus didn't come to save one race. He didn't come to save one group. He didn't come to save one nation. He came to save all nations, all groups, all people of all colors, of all races for all time. And all we have to do is place our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ the great Savior, the ultimate Savior, the perfect Savior, and find forgiveness and healing from all of our sins. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before you today, we are humbled and grateful for the way that you use even imperfect people, the way that even though we have failed and we have fallen, that you can pick us up wherever we're at, and you can use us no matter where we come from, what our background, what we've done in our life, what's been done to us. May each one of us seek to serve you and seek to honor you because of that. Father, 
we thank you that ultimately it's not about a human savior, but it's about Jesus Christ, our ultimate savior, who gives each one of us new hope, new life, and new birth. We give you the praise for that this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.